Hey Colin, you claim that we misrepresented slash misunderstood Sola Scriptura, but we did not. Christians already know that Protestants don't believe Sola Scriptura was the rule from the beginning. You're the one attacking the straw man, not us. It would be interesting to hear your response to this video. This time, pay attention to what we're actually saying and see if you can respond to the points that we are actually presenting instead of creating a straw man and attacking that. So that's what I'll be dealing with in this video. I still haven't figured out YouTube. Unlike my other social media accounts, when someone comments, it doesn't give me a notification. It, it will every now and then, but it doesn't give me a notification for every single comment, which I'm sure for people with really popular YouTube channels, that's a good thing. But for me, what ended up happening was I thought YouTube was notifying me, but it wasn't. So there are a lot of comments on a lot of videos that I've never seen, that I've never gotten to. Uh, and when I noticed it, I started going through some of my old videos and seeing comments. And I noticed that How To Be Christian commented on one of my videos uh, on Sola Scriptura. And in that comment, as you just read, he wanted me to respond to a different video on Sola Scriptura that he made in response to Dr. Jordan Cooper. And since I prioritize requests, especially requests from people as popular as How To Be Papist, I decided, yeah, I gotta do this. But first, let me give a brief summary. First, this is a response to a response. So, Ferris responded to Dr. Jordan Cooper. Dr. Jordan Cooper is a Lutheran that I have a lot of respect for. Really, really smart guy on YouTube. He's got some great videos. And Dr. Cooper made a video on Sola Scriptura. You should just go and watch it because I will not do him justice in my summary. But essentially, one of the points that, that Dr. Cooper made that Ferris really seems to hone in on, he says that Roman Catholics have more of a burden of proof than the Protestants do. We all agree that scripture is God-breathed, and that's what scripture calls itself. Second Timothy 3, all scripture is God-breathed. It has this unique nature of being the word of God. And Dr. Cooper said, so the Roman Catholic has the burden of proof. We all know that scripture is God's word, so that's where we Protestants stand. And now the Roman Catholic needs to show us if there's anything else that is also God-breathed. What else has that kind of nature? And so Ferris decided to make a response and refute Dr. Cooper, or at least attempt to refute Dr. Cooper. And I, I'll, I'll play his clips, but basically what his argument boiled down to was whatever gave you scripture had to also be God-breathed. Whatever gave you the canon of scripture had to also be God-breathed. Since scripture doesn't give you its own canon, something else has to give you its canon, and that thing has to be inspired or else you don't know that you actually have scripture. So that basically boils down his argument, is that without an external inspired canon giver, how could we ever possess the God-inspired scriptures? Anytime you talk about Sola Scriptura, the Roman Catholic apologists are just going to beeline for canon, right? So you can kind of expect it. But this is sort of put in a different format than we typically talk about. So there's still something new, something fresh here. So let's look at some of his comments and dive in. But at some point in time, someone or something, we'll call it Source X. Source X. Source X already referred to certain books as scriptures, but Source X then claimed that other books should also be included 
under that label of scripture. One of those writings that they included happened to be Paul's letter to Timothy, which is represented here by there's a walk in my pocket. Other writings that were recognized as scripture were written before this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, and still other writings that were included were written after that letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. Anyway, Source X recognized that these books were scripture, and Source X, Source X. compiled what we now know as scriptures. So Source X said this compilation of writings is scripture. Now, of course, they weren't referring to this compilation of these particular writings, they were referring to this one, but the idea of how it got put together is the same. Someone or something, Source X, told Christians to do this. And now we have this compilation of a bunch of different writings all in one place. So in order for Jordan B. Cooper to have his Bible today, this compilation process had to take place. And my question for Mr. Cooper, if you're watching, is who or what is Source X? that told you what the scriptures were. So there it is, that's his point, is how can Dr. Cooper claim to know that the Bible is inspired, to know that the Bible is God-breathed without this God-breathed external authority, which he's calling Source X. We all know what he thinks it is. He thinks it's the Roman Catholic Church. Without Source X giving us the Bible, giving us the canon. And there are a lot of problems with this that I'm not gonna get into today but I'm gonna highlight just three problems with this. First and foremost, it's circular. This is entirely circular reasoning on Ferris's end. And here's why I say that. Because when he dubs in Source X as this thing, this singular thing that had to give us the canon, he is actually presupposing or assuming what he has to prove. He is assuming that an external singular authority, be it an institution or a person, some external singular authority from outside of scripture gave some infallible declaration. That's the Roman Catholic position, and he's just smuggling it in and then calling it something else and then daring Dr. Cooper to give an answer that doesn't fit that model. But that model is the very question at hand. He's presupposing his model. I, I wanna give you an example of that from a book that I think Ferris really needs to read. This is Dr. Kruger's book, Canon Revisited is a book that everyone should read. If you're a Protestant, it'll really help you understand the development specifically of the New Testament canon. But even if you're not a Protestant, it will help you better understand where we're coming from. It will help you understand why we actually do think the scriptures can self-authenticate or prove themselves. So that is why the Protestant answer that we actually don't have to go outside of scripture to validate scripture is much less circular than you might think. If you were to read that book, you could see that. In order to defend the Protestant view in the book, he has to also sort of describe and refute the other competing understandings of the development of canon. And guess what? There's not just one. It's not like the Roman Catholic understanding of the canon versus the Protestant understanding of the canon. It's not like that. As a matter of fact, he gives seven including his own. Seven, he groups them. There are community-determined models, so this would be how to be papist. These are, this is any model that thinks the canon was determined by some external community, whether it be a church or an infallible person or a group of people, whatever it might be. This is what Ferris is presupposing in his dilemma. But also notice he's, he's only presupposing one specific kind of a community-determined model, the Roman Catholic model. But Kruger also notes that there are others in the scholarly literature. There's the historical critical model, there's the Roman Catholic model, the canonical criticism model, and the existential slash neo-orthodox model. 
And then guess what? You don't even have to have a community determined model. You can have a historically determined model that history determines the canon. You could go with a canon within the canon model or a criteria of canonicity model. And now Kruger would think all of those are wrong, as I would, and then he goes on in the book to defend and explain the Protestant model, which is the self-authenticating model. So isn't this amazing? We have seven different potential ways to understand how we got the New Testament canon in the scholarly literature. And Ferris just wants to arbitrarily cross off six of them, hold up his own and give it a new name and say, this has to be how Dr. Cooper got canon, <laughs> right? Whatever he says, I'm going to shove his answer into my model. And I'm going to show how none of his answers can fit inside of my model. Well, I agree that our answer can't fit inside of your model, but you have yet to prove why your model is what we should be presupposing here, right? It's circular reasoning. He just assumed Source X, some external body, gave us an infallible declaration. But there are a lot of options on the table other than that option. Why did he start there? And then he goes on to criticize that any answer that Dr. Cooper could give is going to commit one of two problems. Either he's going to give an external thing, which is God-breathed, and then refute his own claim that only the scriptures are God-breathed. Or he's going to give an answer of something that isn't God-breathed, and then that would be subject to scripture. And now we have a logical problem. But again, if the scriptures can authenticate themselves, if they have the ability to validate themselves, then we not only don't have a logical inconsistency, but we've broken through with his model. The Protestant understanding of a self-authenticating canon destroys the false dilemma that he thinks he's put us into. It, it frees us from being caught in, in between a rock and a hard place. As a matter of fact, while we are on this point, I'm, I'm still talking about how I think he's committing circular reasoning, but I think it's important to point out that not only does the self-authenticating model break free from his false dilemma and expose his circular reasoning, but number one, this model actually gives proper honor to the Word of God as being what he agrees it is, the Word of God. In other words, it recognizes that Scripture, if it is unique and if it is powerful, it will manifest itself as unique and powerful. His assumption that the only way a person could ever know a book is inspired is if some external authority told them the book was inspired. That position actually requires an offensive, low view of scripture. He accidentally lets that slip. Listen to his words here. So what's the difference between this compilation of writings and this compilation of writings? The difference is that Source X said that this compilation of writings is scripture, whereas Source X never said the same about this compilation of writings. So both Jordan and myself are relying on Source X. Source X to tell us what the scriptures are. He held up this canon of Dr. Seuss and this canon of biblical books, and he says, how do we know which one of these are scripture? And he says, the only difference between them is an external source X told us one of them is from God. Really? That's the only difference between the Bible and Dr. Seuss? Now, I know, I know he wouldn't affirm that truthfully. I know he would say, okay, yeah, there's some differences. But that exposes that that is where the Roman Catholic logic leads to the roman catholic logic leads to there is nothing special or significant about the books in and of themselves we cannot know the books are special they cannot show themselves as special until a church or a pope tells us they're special 
So you read through the Bible and it's, oh, there's nothing important here, nothing special here. And then the Pope says, no, 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 that is special. And you go, oh, wow, look how amazing it is. That's a low view of scripture. He just told us there's no difference between Dr. Seuss and scripture except for what the Pope says about it. <laughs> That's not a very high view of scripture. That's why Dr. Kruger says this, the insistence that canonical books by definition require external validation raises questions about whether the Roman Catholic model pays adequate attention to the intrinsic authority built into these books and how that intrinsic authority could play a role in their authentication. That is such a good quote. And that is exactly what Ferris ignores. He ignores that these books have, if they are God-breathed, which he believes, then don't you think they might operate differently in the world than something that isn't God-breathed like Dr. Seuss? Don't you think they might manifest themselves differently than something like Dr. Seuss? And now you might be asking, what are these divine, what are these intrinsic qualities? It would take a whole video series to get into all that, but let me just give you the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is what the Westminster Confession of Faith says about some of the intrinsic divine qualities of the scriptures. The heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give glory to God, all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, that's a big category with a lot packed in there, and the entire perfection thereof. I would be interested, which of those things that we just read does Ferris disagree with? Does he think the Bible is has contradictions? There is no consent of the part? Does he think the Bible does not have a consistent message about giving glory to God alone? Does he think the Bible lacks some kind of perfection? I'm assuming he would have to agree with all of those parts, but notice when it comes to his canonical model, he acts as if these things don't exist. When you open up the Bible, am I reading the Bible? Am I reading something with perfection and heavenly qualities and Jesus Christ and gospel and power and, and consent of parts? Or am I reading Dr. Seuss? I don't know. Where's the Pope? It's a very low view of scripture. It's, 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 I would say it's an offensive view of scripture. Who knows uh, if there's any significance to God's books unless something that isn't God tells us that. But nonetheless, the first reason why this source X dilemma is wrong is because it commits circular reasoning. He has assumed his model is the only model that can possibly be true. And now he wants me and Dr. Cooper to try to figure out how our answer fits inside of his model. But we reject his model altogether. Not just his answer, his entire model. The second reason why this source X dilemma doesn't work is because it's just ahistorical. It's not, it's not historical. This idea that I we can't have any canon, we can't know a book is inspired without some source X to, to whisper in our ear and tell us that it's inspired. Uh, the Jews didn't have that. How did the Jews determine their canon? The Jewish people did not have an infallible source X. People want to point to the Jewish magisterium, like they had the seed of Moses. That wasn't an infallible body. They did not teach doctrine infallibly. You think the Pharisees were infallible? You think the Sadducees were infallible? These were the same men, by the way, who Jesus had to correct not just their behavior, but their teachings too. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had to correct the teachings about the law that the Jews received. He had to correct their oral traditions. They were teaching oral traditions that Jesus very clearly said, these contradict the word of God. This was a very fallible, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were a very fallible 
teaching body. Very fallible. So the Jews did not have an infallible source X, yet they were able to determine a canon. So why does Ferris think Dr. Cooper and I needs an infallible source X in order to determine what is scripture? It's ahistorical. Additionally, the, the Roman Catholic Church, which is what he thinks source X is, their definition of the canon, their, it comes very late in history. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of years after the death of the last apostle. So are you mean to tell me that nobody had any concept of what books were inspired before Rome made that definition? Then how is it that how we have all of these church fathers who give lists of canonical books, and even though there are a lot of uh, debate on some of the fringes, the core are all the same. You can find it in all these different theologians way before Rome's definition. At best, even if we assume Ferris is correct, all we can actually say is that Source X helped us to clean up the canon. But the canonical core, this can be found in theologians very early in church history, in lots of them. Where did they get this notion? How were they able to determine John was scripture without the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later definition from Rome? So his understanding that we need some infallible external authority, this model, it's ahistorical. The Jews didn't need it. The early Christians didn't need it. So it's circular reasoning. It's ahistorical. And then lastly, it begs the question, if his whole position relies upon the idea that I can't know the scriptures are God-breathed unless I have something outside of them, which are also God-breathed to tell me that, what's the logical problem with there? That begs the question. That logic goes on infinitely without end. In Ferris's video, he asked a question to Dr. Cooper. Here's my question to Ferris. Whatever your answer for source X is, how do you know infallibly that source X is infallible? I wanna give Ferris source Y, and I wish I had the video quality production that he has. Source Y! <laughs> source Y determined source X for you, Ferris. What's source Y? If I need an infallible external authority to tell me that scriptures are infallible, then I need an infallible external authority to tell me that that infallible external authority is infallible. If my fallible brain is incapable of determining that Dr. Seuss is not inspired, the Bible is inspired, if my brain can't do that, then what makes you think my brain can look at all of these different potential sources and determine, ah, that source X, that one's inspired. If my brain couldn't figure out that the Bible was inspired, my brain can't figure out that source X is inspired, so what do I need? I need source Y, and source Y can tell me what source X is. But what's the problem? My brain can't figure source Y out either, so what do I need? I need source Z, and source Z needs to tell me what source Y is, and source Y needs to tell me what source X is, and source X needs to tell me what the Bible is. But what's the problem? I can't figure out source Y, and so, and we go on forever and ever and ever. You see, Ferris's model doesn't ask, answer the question at all. It doesn't answer the question. It gives us another question to ask. <laughs> it doesn't answer the question. It gives us another question to ask. Ferris's model does not give us scripture. All it does is begs the question for all eternity. If we need source X to determine the Bible, then we need source Y to determine source X, and we need source Z to determine source Y, and that never ends. And by the way, how might he try to break the eternal regress? Well, maybe he might try to appeal to scripture. Well, I know what source X is, 
because of Matthew 16, 18, where Christ says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And that's the Roman Catholic church. That's source X. What's the problem with that? Number one, he would be appealing to Matthew, but he doesn't know that Matthew is inspired or reliable without source X. So you can't appeal to scripture to prove source X if your position is that source X gives you scripture. And additionally, source X in his worldview is ultimately going to go along to interpret scripture. So he cannot appeal to scripture to prove source X. Because his whole point is that source X1 gives him scripture and two, interprets scripture for him. In order for scripture to prove source X, you would have to know what scripture is and how to interpret it without source X. Scripture can't prove source X, source X proves scripture. So how else might he prove what source X is? as opposed to the Eastern Church or the Mormons, or my view. Maybe he'll appeal to history. Maybe he'll appeal to church history. Well, look at the history. We can find the history. Well, a lot of problems with that. Number one, you weren't there. The only way to appeal to history is to read history books, to read church fathers. And again, you're fallible. You might be misinterpreting them. Whose fathers? How do you know there wasn't a great apostasy? We could ask all of these questions. That <laughs> Just a bunch of presuppositions there. But more importantly to the point, Source X also has to give him history. Source X has to teach you what to find in history, how to interpret history. Because guess what? The Mormons interpret history too, and they interpret it as a great apostasy. How does he know they're wrong? Source X tells him. The Eastern Orthodox have their own understanding of church history. The Eastern Orthodox Church thinks church history is on their side, not Rome's side. So Source X, whatever he puts into Source X, has to also tell him history, just like it has to tell him scripture. So Source X can't come from scripture, Source X can't come from history. And so we still have this very important question. He asked Dr. Cooper, what is Source X? We want to know how he knows what Source X is. How can he possibly tell us this is Source X? And remember, he can't use history to do it, he can't use scripture to do it, and he has to use fallible reasoning to do it. How can he give us an infallible Source X without scripture, without history, and without fallible reasoning? What I think is really the problem here is his entire model is unhelpful and unworkable. Doesn't answer the question, and it therefore doesn't actually give us scripture. Source X does not provide for us what he thinks it provides for us. When Jordan answers my question, and then he uses his answer as my answer to his question, then Jordan can either say, yes, Source X is God-breathed, or no, Source X is not God-breathed. Both of those answers are bad news for Jordan. Because if Jordan says, no, Source X is not God-breathed, then Source X can still be one of these other authorities that Sola Scripture allows for, which would mean that Source X is now subject to the scriptures. Jordan already said that the other authorities are not infallible, which means that they could be wrong. So his next claim is that if we have an external authority that tells us what scripture is, and that authority is fallible, then we have a big problem. Because now how do we know that the canon it gave us is true since it's a fallible authority? In other words, he's saying, whatever authority gave you scripture, whatever authority identified the canon has to be infallible. You have a problem if it's a fallible authority. But here's his issue. He suffers from that problem. Why? because his own understanding, his own reasoning process is fallible. But guess what? It was his reasoning process that chose source X, which gave him the Bible. So he appealed to his reasoning process, and his reasoning process says, don't listen to the Eastern Orthodox Church, don't listen to the Mormon Church, don't listen to the Protestants, listen to Rome. And then he made that fallible decision, and then Rome gave him a canon. 
But guess what? By his own logic, that canon he has received from Rome cannot have assurance. Why? Because the source it came from, Rome, came from a fallible source, his own mind. If a fallible source cannot tell me what the infallible scriptures are, how can his fallible brain tell him what the infallible source X is? No matter what, we all go back to something fallible because we're all going back to our own reasoning processes. If fallible source X cannot produce infallible scripture, then by what standard does he say that fallible reasoning can produce a fallible, an infallible church, which then produces an infallible scripture? Again, he's added a step, but he hasn't saved himself from the conundrum. He has not escaped the problem that he thinks the Protestants are in. You can also add any writings to those scriptures as long as those writings don't conflict with the existing scriptures. Like even today, you could add more writings to the Bible according to Sola Scriptura because there's nothing in scriptures that says you can't do that. Just make sure that your interpretation of whatever writing you're adding doesn't conflict with anything that's in the Bible right now. This is pretty remarkable. So he thinks that another problem for us Protestants is that we can just add to the canon all we want since we don't have an authority. And uh, there's nothing in the Bible that says we can't. This is actually very untrue. Number one, the first reason why a Protestant would not be able to uh, add a book to the canon is because our current canon reveals to us that there is no new revelation. In order to have a book added to the canon, it would need to be newly inspired. But we don't believe in new revelation. And why don't we believe that? Because Jude 3 tells us, commends us to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And Jude was written in the first century. So the Protestant canon does not allow us to add to the canon books that were not handed down through the apostles in the first century. Because our canon, current canon, tells us that the faith was completely delivered through the apostles. So anything that isn't apostolic, if it's new, it does not belong in the canon. And that leads to an important related point, that there are no new apostles. We, are, we believe there are no new apostles. The apostles were the ones who had the authority to write scripture or to approve of scripture. For a scriptural book to be scripture, it has to be apostolic. Since all the apostles are dead, no new book can be added to the canon because it can't be from an apostle. Now, someone could claim, well, I am an apostle and it's from me, but we would argue there are no new apostles based on our current canon. Why? Because Acts 1 tells us the, the criteria for apostleship. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So what are essentially the two qualifications of an apostle? You had to have walked with Jesus during his entire earthly ministry and seen, been an eyewitness to his resurrection. No one today meets that qualification. Nobody today meets that qualification. The only exception to that is Paul, but we could very, very easily go through scripture and show that Paul was meant to be just that, an exception to the rule. He wasn't creating a new rule so that all of these people could become apostles. Paul was a clear exception that proves the rule, and this is the rule. So no, we cannot add books to the canon because there's no new revelation and there's no new apostles. The only tri potentially tricky thing would be if someone claimed to have found a book that we can prove was written by one of the original apostles and somehow was 
missed from the church. But that would be an interesting issue for Rome as well, not just Protestants. That would be a difficult issue for everybody. But the Protestants have a decent uh, answer to that, though I'm not going to get into huge detail here. And that's what Kruger calls uh, a book needs to have providential exposure, providential exposure. And he thinks he can prove this from scripture, though I'm not going to do that today. But here's just a quick summary of what he means by providential exposure. We trust in the providence of God to expose the church to the books it is to receive as canonical. How can the church recognize books it does not have? Thus, our model, by definition, does not address lost apostolic books. So in other words, we believe from Scripture, from the promises of Scripture, that uh, any book that was lost to the entire history of the church, and we only just now found this book, could not possibly be a canonical book. So those are three canonical reasons why we cannot, as Protestants, add to our canon. So he's just dead wrong about that. It's dead wrong. And here's what's so amazing. Rome can add to the canon. <laughs> Roman Catholic apologists are very clear that the definition that Rome gave set the floor. It did not set the ceiling. They define the minimum canon, but if Rome wanted to, she could define more and more books. Source X could continually give us books. So if there's anyone who needs to be afraid of waking up tomorrow with a new book he has to believe is from God, it's how to be papist, not resisting the winds. It is Ferris, not Colin. I don't have to worry about an additional Protestant canon. Ferris does. He has to worry about his canon growing. He has to worry about what his church might dogmatically decree tomorrow, what Francis might tell him to believe tomorrow. So let's say all of these interpretations conflict with each other in some way or another. With all of these being possible interpretations, how do you know which one is the correct interpretation? The one that gets you the actual meaning of the Bible? This is another thing that comes up with Roman Catholics a lot. Whose interpretation? Who, whose interpretation? Once again, this is not a problem that Source X solves. This is not a problem that Rome solves. People can still misinterpret Source X. People can still misinterpret Rome. People can misinterpret the Pope. Every time the Pope speaks, people have to come out and explain what it means. And you have Catholics who debate uh, all day long what Vatican II means and what Vatican II is actually saying and whether it's infallible or not and all this stuff. Uh, Rome, all Rome does is give you more things to interpret. It does not solve the problem of subjective interpretation. It just gives you more things to interpret. The second someone tells you how to interpret something, guess what you have to do? You have to interpret their words and you might misinterpret them. And you do have different, you do have Roman Catholics who have different interpretations and different understanding of history and of tradition. So really the question is who interprets the interpreter? And again, we're back to that eternal regress. If I can't know what the Bible says because I might misinterpret it and I need source X to interpret it for me, what if I can misinterpret source X? I need source Y to interpret source X. Well, what if I misinterpret Y? So I need, we're back to that regress. You see how he just doesn't answer. So his source X model is not helpful. It compounds problems. It doesn't solve problems. Now, I want to end with this. This is important. He kind of threw out some Bible verses just at the very end in conclusion. I'll try not to go into too much detail because he didn't go, in, go into too much detail. He just made bold assertions. This is where at the end he kind of came out and dumped the whole Source X thing and said, by the way, Rome is the church. Rome is Source X. And he threw out these different verses he likes to throw out to prove that. So Mr. Cooper, if you're watching, I want to invite you to play defense on a winning team because you and everyone are always welcome in Jesus's one and only Christian church, the one that Christ built, the one that Christ gave teaching authority to, and the one that Christ guides into all the truth. Everyone is welcome to play for that team, and that team doesn't believe in Sola Scriptura. So you don't have to try to defend a teaching that's indefensible. He just made three claims. 
he talked about how the source X is the Roman Catholic Church, and that's the church that Christ built based on Matthew chapter 16. And then he claimed that uh, the Roman Catholic Church has the teaching authority, which he based on Matthew chapter 18. And then he claimed that it's an infallible church that the Holy Spirit will guide into all truth. And he based that on uh, a verse from John 16. Again, he can't know any of that because he needed to know that the church was the one true church and infallible before he could know uh, anything of this, right? He, he can't know what scripture is or how to interpret it without already having source X. So I don't know why he's using scripture to prove source X when we need source X to prove scripture. He's working the wrong way. But let me just briefly refute some of these verses. Uh, number one, I'm not going to spend too much time on Matthew 16. That's obviously a huge issue and uh, really deserves its own video. And there's plenty of videos online for that. But he claims that the Roman Catholic Church is the church of Matthew 16. That, Or forgive me, not just the Roman Catholic Church, really just the Roman Catholic Pope is Peter of Romans chapter 16. Let me just briefly rattle off a few problems with that. Number one, that is not historical. Uh the church fathers were very divided on who is the rock of uh, Matthew chapter 16, whether it's Peter or his faith or some combination of both. So it is uh, not at all tradition to believe in the papacy from Matthew chapter 16, 18. Many of the church fathers disagreed. Additionally, there's nothing in here about successors. That's just something he reads into this text. It says absolutely nothing about his successors. But one of my favorite ways to refute his understanding of Matthew 16 is to refute his understanding of Matthew 18. He appeals two chapters later to Matthew 18 to the famous passage on church discipline. And he uses this passage to teach that the church has teaching authority. But let's read this passage. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Here's the problems with his interpretation. Number one, he said that this gives teaching authority to the Roman Catholic Church. This has nothing to do with teaching authority. This is about discipline. This is about behavioral authority. This is about the ability to kick people out of church. This has nothing to do with teaching authority. This has nothing to do with infallibly defining the canon or infallibly defining the Marian dogmas. This has nothing to do with teaching authority. This is about disciplinary action. Second problem is we know that this is not about the Roman church because it's about the local church. And how do we know that? Because how could anyone possibly apply this if the word church here, ecclesia, means the Roman Pope and his magisterial council? Which, by the way, I would just love to see a word study on the Greek word ecclesia, which ever proves that ecclesia is equivalent to a Pope and his magisterium. Right? Just please prove to me that church ever means pope and his council <laughs> okay that's not what the word church means he has to read that into this text because he's claiming this text is giving the church infallible authority but every local roman catholic parish is not infallible the only people infallible when a catholic says infallible church is the pope and the magisterium together so when he says that this is making the church infallible he's essentially saying that the word church equals the pope and his magisterium and uh <laughs> 
<laughs> I would just love to see proof of that. But additionally, more to the context, if, if a brother sins against me, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to talk to him. But what happens if he doesn't, uh, he's clearly in the wrong and he doesn't repent? Well, then I'm supposed to bring two or three witnesses and we're supposed to talk to him together. But what if he uh, doesn't listen to the two or three witnesses, even though we have sufficient evidence? If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. So then we're supposed to go to the church. Okay, if the church means the Roman Catholic Church, that means the infallible church. Uh, I don't know about you, but the Pope hasn't been returning my calls lately. How on earth do I tell this to the infallible church in Rome? I can't. The only people I have access to are my local church. This is about the local church. Okay? This is the only way it's possible. This is about a local body of people handling local sin issues among their local authorities. This is not about the one true universal authoritative infallible church. This is about every local church where two or three are gathered. Now, why does Rome have to read this acontextually about the Roman Catholic Church? Because it has, that's right, the power to bind and loose. And they wanted to tell us in Matthew 16 that the power of binding and loosing only belongs to Peter. But what's the problem? Uh, a couple chapters later, it was given to all the apostles and then contextually by extension to all the local churches. Yikes. So the power of binding and loosing is not something that the Roman Catholic Church alone possesses. It's not something that Peter alone possessed. It's not even something that um, the Pope alone possesses. But here's the last one. I want to end with this one. And uh, this I'm going to do, it's going to be kind of funny, but it, it'll only make sense if you go to How To Be Christian's YouTube channel and you watch his latest video titled, I can't remember the exact title, but it's something like Romans, the book of Romans destroys Protestant theology or something like that. Something about Romans destroying Protestantism. And he, he uh, at one point in time in that video, he takes a long Bible verse and he tells us to pay very close attention to the pronouns and he bolds them. And he actually makes a good point in that. He does. He makes a good point in that. And so I'm going to remind him to apply that to John 16. He needs to apply that to John 16. So let's read John 16. He quoted one verse from John 16, which he thinks proves that the Roman Catholic Church is led by the Spirit to be infallible. But let's see if John 16 is actually about the Roman Catholic Church. Let's see. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when, your hour com that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, here's the key, he will guide you into all the truth. 
For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, in a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is it that he says to us? What is it he says to the Roman Catholic Church, to the Pope? No, to us, to the disciples, to some of his disciples. Jesus was talking to his disciples, specifically to his apostles. This has nothing to do with the Roman Catholic Church. The verse in John 16, that the Holy Spirit guides some group of people into all truth is not a promise that all Protestants will be in know the truth like some protestants quote this verse it's not a promise that the roman catholic church is infallible it's a promise that the apostles would be infallible the reason we believe the new testament is infallible is it becomes it comes from the apostles and they're the infallible ones they're the ones who have all the truth of jesus that he taught to them and even the stuff that they couldn't bear until the spirit came and the spirit revealed all of jesus's truth to them this is a promise to the apostles to make the apostles infallible it's not a promise to the roman catholic church so who is it that we're supposed to believe the holy spirit guides perfectly into all truth it's the apostles not Francis.